This is the Championship Club Podcast, the show that shines a light on English rugby's second flight. Join us every fortnight and check us out on the socials at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. This is the Championship Clubs Podcast. Today, brought to you in association with the Rugby Journal, a quarterly print journal all about rugby. The stories from our game, brutally told from grassroots rugby up to the elite and everything in between. And I'm very excited to get stuck into today's episode with today's guest. But as is formality and as is tradition, we kick off with you, my mate Ben Gulliver, champ rugby aficionado, uh, to talk about the latest results. I mean, Gully, last time we spoke a fortnight ago, we said, oh, the league's really close and this, that and the other. But now there's two points between first and ten. We're only four rounds in. Everyone's lost a game and uh, it looks like a properly entertaining league at the moment, doesn't it? Mate, it look, it's, it's looking very good. Um, like you said, sort of, I just had a brief look at the league and Pirates are down there second from bottom, but one win away from top in the league. So it's it's a crazy league. I don't think there's a league like that at the moment or I've seen in a long time. So it's um, it's it's looking very competitive. Uh, looking at the fixtures coming up this weekend and the ones gone, there's been one anom- anomaly, which was the the Ealing game. But by all accounts, not not didn't send their strongest team down there, and they're being quite strategic with that their approach to the league, which is good when they're on a skinny squad. So it's um, it's exciting times for the championship uh, on the field, which is great, which is what we like to um, showcase on here every week and uh, or every other week as it is now. And it's um, it's like I said, it's exciting. It's, um, it's it's thoroughly enjoyable to watch it from afar, but also feel the fans and supporters within it, I imagine. Yeah, uh, I certainly think that's the case. And I think uh, I've, I've noticed, and we'll probably delve into this uh, as we get into the meat of the episode, that the, the chatter around the league in the, in the social media space has been quite exciting recently, uh, which is brilliant. Uh, and to talk to us about all things Championship and all things the Rugby Journal, it is the Rugby Journal's editor, Alex Mead. Alex, thank you very much for joining us on the Championship Club podcast today. Thanks for having us, guys. Um, really excited. But I think what you guys are doing is brilliant. It's uh, about time we had some quality content about the championship out there in all formats. Thank you yes. very much. Uh, I was just going to say, so it's a pleasure to meet you. I've chat on the phone the other week and it's nice to have you on. And I think sort of when we started, we, we were trying to showcase sort of the championship, which is a little bit undervalued at times. But I think with what you guys do at the Rugby Journal, but also what we've done a little bit, it's sort of, Things, things, some positive stories kind of about the league, which is which is one of our main goals of doing this. Yeah, there's so much depth to it. I think that's what always appealed. Like even when we started, I'm a huge fan of the championship and always have been. And I think when you look at the people and the places and the characters, and it's a lot like the women's game to some degree, where there's so much characters there as well because they've all got so much going on. And I think when you've got great stories to tell, it's, it makes it easy when you're covering the championship because there's, there is a lot of competition there too. So it's a very rich well from which to get content, I think. We certainly think so. Uh, Alex, let, let's delve into uh, the Rugby Journal and what you're doing. I think we've, we've alluded to it there. And you said, obviously, um, what I love and what obviously brings it to relevance in my life <laughs> is there, there is that focus on covering the game, not just at the pinnacle. I think... In our sport, there is obviously an awful lot of focus on the international game and the premiership. And then I know you do an awful lot in that space, but also 
an awful lot done on the women's game. Very, very, I think, pioneering your coverage of of the women's game, but the championship and then and then below stories from the national leagues uh, and the very grassroots level, finding these characters, these stories. And has that been a real sort of MO for the publication or has that just sort of been a bit of a natural progression of where you found your audience? Yeah, I think it was. It was always to try to tell those stories really beneath the premiership and the ones that were in the premiership, it was trying to find a different angle because... The thing is, we all get very narrow, like when it comes to the digital world. And we all know when it comes to the national press that it's a very narrow focus or variance on stories. And I think when you actually expand, I mean, it is literally a pyramid. So it makes sense. There's more stories the further down you go. And I think with the championship and, and national leagues, the clubs were so intertwined with the towns, which was really important. And it's whether that's talking about the industry, because you get people come to us. Oh, here's a great story. My club's a great community club. Every we're really welcoming, and our mini section's got five hundred kids. It's like, but why does why does anyone else care? And I think where you do start to care is where you start to talk about clubs and how they're linked to their towns and their people. Whether it's going to Evervale and talking about the steel industry, or if you go into West Hartlepool and talking about the docks, and this goes on and on. And it, then you start to tell these interesting historical stories. And we went to Richmond, and we ended up talking about sort of henry the eighth and you know where they used to play in the same place that the jousting was taking place probably different henry actually and even the early henry i think but you get the point when you tell these richer stories about the areas and the industry then it's a better story it's just a good story that rugby happens to be the vehicle to telling so it makes people care about clubs in a way that they wouldn't have because before they're just a name you know what do some of these places mean and you know you look at amtel as the example how many people knew where amtel was and that was a bit of a running joke before they're kind of run through. Yet when you tell the story of Amtel, it's actually, you know, fascinating. You know, there's Catherine Aragon who was held in prison there and all sorts of things. So there's lots of great stories. And I think that was what we wanted to do. We wanted to tell great stories, but rugby was the vehicle through which we sort of told them, I guess. I think uh, that's quite interesting. I think it again resonates with what we've done because obviously I've I've worked in the league for for nine years now with well with one <laughs> national one as we got relegated. Gully spent decades across the division, so we really care about the championship and you know it's it's perhaps been mistreated. I guess you could argue from certain uh, bodies and organisations, and you maybe start asking yourself, do other people care as much as as we do about it? And I think Gull, I'm interested to see what you think of this, but in the time doing the podcast and with the reaction that we've had to do in the podcast, it's actually become really obvious to me that, yeah, people do care about this and people are really interested to know more about the stories, but they do also see the value of what we provide. I say we, yeah. as in the league, so <laughs> provides. I think, like, for me, it's sort of, you know, I, I always cared about the league as a player when I was in it. I obviously played for a lot of clubs, which is which is the running joke on here. But I, I had a great time at... Um, you know, you, you invest your time, like you say, in, into the town, into the community, and the the league, especially in that sense, because there's because of, because of those stories that we we like to tell, and having the opportunity to tell them, is, is, you know, is great. And the reaction we've been getting, and a little bit more press that's been coming off the back of it, is is good. And it's it's not about me getting more press. It's about it's about the league and more spotlight on it, and that and that's great because I, I know like there's there's guys that we've got lined up to talk to that if we're we're not this space or with the rugby journals not this space then how do people know about what's going on in the league and being able to tell those stories and, and having a platform to do so I think gives it a bit more reach it gives it a bit more um, I don't know in, interest and with, with people outside of the championship which I think is sort of 
really important for it to get to where we'd like to see it. Um, you know, like, you know, I refer to sort of my times in the Southwest and it was thought I played like the, the glory days of the championship. And it'd be, I'd be interested to see what like, Alex's his views on sort of like where the championships went from its sort of beginning and to where it is now and like the journey it's come on, come across as a, as a competition and sort of where it's a pretty loaded question, mate. Apologies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what, um, like your your actual experiences of of the league and you, and and why you why you've sort of almost fallen in love with it. So I, I started. I'm I'm from Brixham in Devon. So um, growing up, um, our nearest big club. Every, most people in Devon Cornwall, I think their big club would have been like Bath, probably, um, just because it was the nearest big one. And also, you know, I played hooker, and Graham Dor used to come down and do the presentation. And you know, there's lots of little things like that. But when I started writing, it was. I was writing for Rugby um, Times um, back in the day and um, also Rugby World. And my focus would have been on those three clubs. It would have been Penzance, Exeter and Plymouth. And for me, it was great. I did loads on Plymouth because Graham Dorr was there and he was creating this amazing side, you know, tuppers, tuppers, uh, nails. And you would have um, Penzance, Jim McKay was down there and he was quite a character as well. But what Dickie was starting to do down there and then Exeter with Ian Bremner and then Drew. And I remember going to Exeter when they had their first professional squad and they're training out in just by the river in a public park. And and all of us were behind all of them. Yeah. You know, growing up, you didn't like Plymouth or Exeter or Penn because you played against them. But they're in a race to see who was going to be our West Country side. And it was such an exciting time then because... You felt, and Bristol got overturned, and we know, you know, Worcester and Rotherham and all these other sides. It just felt there were so many battling, but it felt like all of us could potentially go up. There was probably eight sides in that division that you felt had a chance, and it was just how the dice rolled that particular season. Um, but it was also close. You knew people there. Um, it, it, it felt like it was what rugby was about, and even visually, if you think about where those sides were playing. A lot of them are playing very much in the heart of their towns as well. And as rugby grows, they go outside of the towns. You know, Exeter, Sandy Park is brilliant, but obviously they move from the county ground, but the county ground was very much in the heart of Exeter, you know. And, and I think the championship, you've still got that. But from where it went to now, you just feel there was money put in, which is great. It needs money to fund, but there wasn't enough guidance. And I think the problem is no one really knew how professional rugby would work. You know, the premiership doesn't have professional rugby would work. They don't necessarily know how to market themselves. I mean, we're seeing right now, and we're not going to go into it, but the marketing disaster the arguably best club in the country is having right now is a major issue. And if they can't work it out, then surely they must understand everyone else needs help because it's not just about giving them money to pay players. It's about looking at the bigger picture, who's guiding people. So it's no use saying, here is X amount of pounds, go and do that help them because everyone's got everyone's got like amateurs helping them you know it's people volunteers and you can't suddenly expect them to become professional because as we saw at the start of professionalism that happened and it was a disaster you know you talk to anyone at Richmond about how they dealt with it and you've got a guy who was just a volunteer who suddenly becomes the marketing director of a club um and I think it's just such a shame that we're in the situation now where you know Cornish Pirates I'm going to go to because as a Devon fan, um, we want Cornish Pirates to go up because they're like they're like the cousin that you don't like. You know, you can say what you like about him, but no one else can. So you ultimately you're bonded to them. So and I do like Cornish Pirates. I, I've got a lot of time for them. I've got a lot of time for Dickie Evans, and I want that to be it. But 
you don't necessarily feel that everyone <laughs> wants that to happen. And I, it makes no sense to me. It made no sense when they did the Premiership Cup a couple of seasons ago. Why wouldn't you want to see Northampton against Bedford, you know, or, you know, Dev um, Cornish Pirates against Exeter when everyone was in theory professional? There wasn't a safety risk. So why instead have a really boring tournament that no one cares about? So my biggest issue is that nobody talks. And I think... If the Premiership clubs all went down to the Championship clubs, say, "Hey guys, right, present to us a five-year business plan about how you're building, how you're doing that, and see how many of them came back with something." But nobody wants to talk; they just want to shut off everything and say, "Right, we're alone here, and it doesn't matter, and no one's listening." And the RFU don't feel like they've got the power to do anything, so it's just an utter shambles. We're literally in as worse a situation as we were in 1995, which is actually quite remarkable i think i feel like we're you know we're 10 minutes into the podcast and alex has dropped so absolute fire and I'm, I'm i'm here for i think it's great and gully i could see you sort of nodding feeling that you were agreeing with a lot of what was being said there i think it it is quite interesting professionalism obviously i, I work in a championship club now and I, i've seen how the evolution of what we've done here has changed and how it has gone from as you said <laughs> volunteers taking up positions that in say a football club would be a, a really 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 important highly paid professional skill that someone's trained all their life to do uh, and it, it is constantly evolving but now unfortunately i think clubs that have learned things perhaps over the last decade or however long that funding was available for have have streamlined but now the funding has been taken from them so those lessons that have been mm -hmm. learned actually they're now having to do with a much less resource than they had when perhaps they weren't as well placed to use it in the past. Yeah, it's um, it's it's so that that leadership and the, the guidance has been lacking across the game, hasn't it? And Alex has just alluded to it. It's that it's not not necessarily <laughs> a problem. It's it's a rugby problem, isn't it? And it's it's finding that sort of niche marketing area that we need to live in in that space. And we've lived in the same space for a long time. I refer to sort of champ and premiership as like. You've got your private schools, which is the Premiership, and then you've got your comprehensive schools, which is which is the champ. Apart from Bedford, obviously, mm -hmm. but um, <laughs> but it's sort of you feel like the the forgotten group, don't you? And down in the champ, and it's uh, it's it's how it's it's okay. We can, we all will recognise it, but it's it's how we break out of it, and that's I think that's like part of what the strategic reviews about, and how does that look in six months, twelve months, and to have a, have a genuine pathway or not pathway is probably the wrong way, but progression succession piece where, right, if we if we get this bit right now, where do these clubs look in 12 months? Where do they look in 18 months? And where does the league look as a competition? I think that's what I'd like out of the strategic review. I'm not sure what you guys think, but I think that's, I think that's, we're at that point, we're at that crucial point now. And you'd like to see numbers work. You'd like to see, so when that, I'm going to use the World 12s as an example. When they came out, it was based on nothing. It was based on some old guys who used to play rugby. There wasn't a marketing person there saying, do you know what, there is an actual gap in this market. Here are the numbers. Here are the people that want it. Do a numbers-based thing. So look at the geography of the country and look at where those clubs are based, what their potential catchment areas is. Have we got a space? Like when you draw a circle around all the premiership clubs, there's a lot of gaps. Uh, there's a lot of clubs overlapping. There's someone who've got massive circles and, you know, let's get to look at the women's game just briefly and how this alignment of clubs that don't sell out their grounds already, adding another team on top of it, playing them at the same sort of rough times, 
how does that make any sense? It, you know, if you've got men's sides not working um, financially, how does that in women's sides though? When maybe there was a better solution, maybe it should have been someone saying, well, actually, what we need to do is get all the funding to find how, let's say, Doncaster could have a women's team because there's actually a market from there. They've they've done well with the women's game. The football team is questionable, and you know, they, they there's there's the potential there. But I feel it should be not more about numbers, and someone needs to sit down and do a review, not based on. I don't necessarily even think it's necessarily talking to rugby. It's saying like, let's look at what these individual markets are. Let's look at the towns, the places, what their populations are, what their habits are, what they like to do, what they don't like to do. Would they spend money on a game? Make it an actual business model. You know, why why are we doing something based on emotion when it should be based on numbers and marketing and figures and whether there is a gap in the market for 12, 16, 10, 8 rugby sides and where they should be. Whereas we don't ever seem to do that. Everything seems to be driven by emotion, which is obviously I'm very emotional when talking about the fact that it should be driven by emotion. But I think the numbers have to come back into it at some point because we've been over-egging rugby as a whole for too long because we all believe the Six Nations is, oh, there's 9 million people to watch the Six Nations, but they're not, so many of them are there and not there for the rugby. They're there for the, you know, the rivalry between nations. They're just there to see England get a kick in against their neighbours. So you've just got to be realistic and sensible and mathematical and, you know, treat it like a product because that's what it is. It is interesting. I, I compare sometimes the Six Nations and the success of it to similar to horse racing. You know, the fact of the matter is your, your, your Gold Cup days at Cheltenham, your Grand Nationals, your, your derbies, they're going to sell well. But that's not going to mean that more people are going to go to Southern on a Friday night. They're not necessarily there for horse racing. It is an occasion. It is an event. There is everything that's sold around it and erasmus. And uh, I, I think you're right. It's, I think what you're referring to, Alex, if it's simplifying it, is almost selling the sizzle, not the sausage there and we do tend to get wrapped up in the emotions of rugby clubs and I think the reason why people won't do what you're suggesting and, and, and maybe be a little bit more cold and a bit more calculative with it all is because the people that are making these decisions are emotionally invested in their own clubs and want the best for them and that's that's no no bad thing whatsoever um, I think what I would like to see from the strategic review and just in general, it's just some maybe more long term thinking, I think. And Gully, be interested to hear your thoughts on this, that my experiences of the league is that there's never been something sort of three or five years down the plan with. I think numbers are right. I think there should be numbers around KPIs, but something that's a little bit more longer term. And I, again, I appreciate the challenges of trying to plan longer term if you haven't got a secure budget for that time. But if we haven't got objectives that are beyond the end of the season or the season after, how how real is it that you're ever going to make a change more than just a sort of a, a stopgap fix, I guess? I think that for me, whether it's talking about ideas behind broadcast, and I know that's obviously a very hot topic uh, around the championship at the moment, or whether it's about lowering the demographic of crowds or hitting wider audiences, I just think there needs to be a longer term vision for it. And equally, where we sit in relation to our premiership clubs and what our role is with them there needs to be a longer i guess time scale of what we want to achieve do you know do you know what it is mate and it's it's quite straightforward that we we there's no leadership around the league i don't think and it there's there is there's talk of the group and the champ clubs group whatever it is and you know it's there's nothing that comes out whether from them or from it's not necessarily always an rfu issue there is there is a collective within the league that needs to and i know we've got the review but we we're not sure what's anything's actually happened in that yet from what we're hearing so it's 
it's that it's that genuine leadership. Where where does it sit in the ladder? Where where does the championship? We know it has value, but what where where can we where can we sit it as a product, standalone product, with the option to go in the Premiership? We're, I think the league is just lacking that 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 guidance and that leadership um, that maybe the Premiership does have with the the PRL committee. So I, I do think there is scope for for that Championship Rugby Committee that could strategically market the, the the league and it become its own sort of genuine competition that attracts potentially a broadcast deal or maybe a free to air and see where it goes with it because it's, it's a good product it happens every week i think just quickly on that with the leader i think it is a near impossible task to have a cohesive leadership unit in the way that it is at the moment because what we talk about in this league and what we love about the league is that okay this year there's 11 different teams and all 11 of them have very very different situations on how they operate and different objectives so to try and get a comprehensive one outcome and leadership for those 11 is very very difficult just because the 11 teams are in such vastly different situations um so i guess i kind of maybe agree that does there need to be a body a bit like prl have that sit separately of the clubs to provide guidance and, and, and stewardship to the division but then what qualifies those people to make or to be that body and, and where do you draw those those people from it almost needs to be independent doesn't it so that you know, rugby, again, how many people are in positions um, like, you know, marketing, commercial, that lot, when their background was rugby? Do you know what I mean? Rather than marketing, you know, like Saracens at least have a, a marketing person that comes from agencies, which is what you want, because they're used to dealing in research and data and marketing products. There are so many of them, the, the people, and I get why, and they've all got relationships, but you need to think professional. You have the best person in the job, what their skills are. And I think you know that's what that body should be there should be one who looks at them all individually and say well actually what binds all of these clubs together you know what are the actual commonalities that we can do and how can we increase all of these clubs by five percent whatever that you know across the board here is the best practices in place for you this is how you should be doing your your marketing your comms and this is the things we can sell across each other and don't sell this bit of your stadium because we can do all that together and we know that you've got a footfall of 10,000, you've got 5,000, you've got two, you've got whatever, and we can increase everyone by a certain percentage if you had something in place that helped them, that was there to support them, but was a group of professionals across the key categories that you need to run a business, not a rugby club, a business, because, you know, the best CEOs in the world, they move from brand to brand. You know, they're not the, the person who knows the most about washing powder or the most person who knows about cars. They're the best person to run a business. And I think you can break a business up into sections. You can say, right, you've got finance, you've got marketing, you've got product, you've got X, Y, Z. And yes, you can have someone in who sits in product that's looking at the rugby saying, do you know what? This is the problem with our rugby game. We need to trial this rule or see if we can get that. You can do that as well. But I think having that group of professionals from outside of the game, they can have an interest or a passion for it. But ultimately, they've got 20 years in finance, PR, marketing, blah, 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 successful, good brands that could genuinely assist them. And that would make a difference and that would represent them. And if suddenly the content that was coming out of the championship was better than the Prem, people are starting to look at it. Look at the difference it made with the girls when uh, BT Sport did a show about them. Look at the difference in quality because they suddenly sent the right cameras or the right number of cameras to a uh, allied uh, Premier game. And it suddenly is like, whoa, Whereas instead, the cameras that you get at most of these games are the same as what 
I might get a Southgate RFC around the corner. Do you know what I mean? So it, it's hard to get that quality. But if you did have that, you'd say, right, what we're going to do is as a committee, we're going to invest. We're going to go to all the games. We're going to get all this footage because actually that footage, we're going to then sell to brands. And when that footage has the grit and the reality and the towns and the passion, the individual identity that you get in the championship that you do not get in the premiership anymore. They do not have the individual identity that the championships do. And you get rivalries like Amtel against Bedford. That's that's hard to compete with, I think, when you get it shot in the right way. And that's why we use, like, to bring back to the mag, we use reportage guys because we want to capture the towns as well. And that's part of the story. So... I really think an independent committee with with those specialists would be coming up with these ideas and saying, right, who can we get on board? Which brands want to align with rugby? And when you look at the circle, you look championship in the middle, we are connected to the whole world. Like we are connected by the nationalities that you've got there. You're connected because, you know, whichever Kiwi is playing in a whatever team, you guarantee he's been involved, knows the All Blacks, got connections back there our world is actually the whole rugby world within the championship. And when you present that in the right way, you are going to be able to get Browns on board, but it just, it needs to be done and it needs to be done by the right people. So I think it can be done. I just think you need a big change and this independent committee sounds like the best idea. It's, it'd be, wouldn't it be great if, you know, like when when Sky had the the champ rights and it was, it was great. <laughs> Sky, it was, as, as a player at the time, it was, it was, it was brilliant. Oh, we're on Sky. Great. And then, like you say, the the production of it, it was it was there's nothing against the guys that were commentating on it and being pundits of it, but they weren't people from within the league. Now there's a missed opportunity, isn't it? Really? Because mm. it's like if you've yeah. got people that are from within the league, are comfortable talking about the league and understand the stories from within it, um like it, it becomes a better production and then you get people then investing in it as as watchers yeah. and it becomes I've never really thought of it like that before. And it's it's that's that's a genuine opportunity, I think. Well, it's, you've got, you know, you've got the actors, you've got the rivalries, you've got the stories there. It's You've got every character you possibly need. And it is international and it's also local. So you've kind of got all those different things, but it's just the feel of it. You know, the feel of the places you're playing as well in those towns. And, you know, you know, most of you aren't out in the middle of nowhere in an industrial estate or something. You are kind of pretty close to your communities and... You know, it just needs to be captured in the right way um, that's going to engage those people because you've got emotion. You know, you've got an emotion where people are tied to a club in a way that they're just not in the premiership because, you know, you know there isn't the same guys who are, I'm using Rotherham as an example, but like, you know, when you come over, what is it, Wednesday, Tuesday afternoons when they've got those old group of 80-year-olds and there's like war heroes in there. I went up there. Titans, I went up there for Titans Tuesdays, I believe they call yeah, I went up there for Titans Tuesday and and it's brilliant. And they was talking about, I mean, everyone was 60 plus and even in the evenings, you know, they they did their local, all the food. I can't remember, it was a curry or a sausage. I can't remember what it was, but they were talking about the karaoke nights they do with the players. I hadn't heard of any of the songs and I was Googling these songs they were getting the play and they were from the 50s. And it was just, and it was just a completely unique um, scenario. Just that, and you know, these old boys, the idea that they were put, and it does happen at my club. It happens at Brixham when there's a group of old vets and it happens in a lot of clubs. But the idea that it's happening at that high level where they're painting the railings and an old boy who was an RAF pilot is fixing the lights and then out on the pitch is going, you know, a bunch of professional rugby players. Where'd you get that? What a great story. And it's like the FA Cup, but on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, you know, 
we if you watch match of the day and it's i don't know kettering or some random club you've got that but then you've got this high level of rugby and you've got everything else that comes in you've got internationals in there so you get both ends of the spectrum just in in one place in one regular division that happens every week preaching to the choir with us here and we think that you know the the characters and the stories are league of the reason one of the reasons why why we started this up and i do agree it, it needs it needs packaging it needs finessing and it needs producing in a way that makes it purchasable and spreading i guess um i, I think that was a, a positive way to end that sort of segue if you like um i wanted to talk about the opportunity for the championship now um at the top of the show we kind of said we felt that the the maybe the rhetoric around the league at the moment is quite positive, and that's not always been the case. You know, obviously you hear stories sometimes about players who had to slog it out on awful wages and this, that, and the other. But recently, I think the fact that the the league is only four games old and everyone's lost a game, and the fact that we've got some good clips going out across the socials with some nice rugby being played, the fact that Nick Dobbs <coughs> in the England squad now having been playing for Coventry last year as well. It, it feels to me, and obviously we, we had Mark Atkinson on the show last week. Congratulations to him included in the in the squad for the Autumn Internationals. Um, uh, and there's a piece with him in, in, in the Telegraph on the back of, of that, that there seems to be an opportunity now for the champ. And whether it's, you know, because of COVID and premiership clubs cutting the cloth, that now more than ever, the, the, this relevance, um, it, it could be capitalised upon. Um, mm. let, let's just dive dive into the rugby at the moment because uh, yeah, I, I, I do think the product is as strong now despite the testing circumstances as it has been for a few seasons. Mate, 100%. I mean, I've, I've, I've watched a couple of games and, and I think I think the weather's helped a little bit, which is always a bonus, but um, that, that helps rugby across all levels. So, But the, the, it's like you say, the, the players like your Nick Dolly um, that's popped out of the league last year now in an England squad. Aki was in it a long time ago. Uh, but the actual product on the field now is is pretty damn good, and is you know, I think like Aki referred to it last week that those middle band of players that were in the Premiership, so the guys that wouldn't play, you know, as I've got friends that were in and around it at that point, earning the eighty ninety k's a year. Now they've had to squeeze those guys out, and then it's sort of you've obviously got your top end and then your, your lower end on, on wages. But there's a there's a selection of players that are of that quality that would would have been in a in a Prem squad, they were getting an opportunity to play, but also getting an opportunity to bounce back up. And as a result, we're seeing very tight games across the league. The spread of the good players is, is right across the league. Obviously, there's, there's Ealing have a, a larger budget than most, but, you know, your, your jerseys, your Pirates, um, Amtel, Coventry, they can all beat each other. Hartby having a great season the start to the season. And if you look down the league, you like, look at Hartby, like JB Brasilia's there. And you think, oh, geez, he's a good player. And then you look at the Richmond team, and you got you know, see Mark Bright's in there, and there's there's some other good players that have played a lot in the champ in, in the champion, and some of some above. So there's a real selection of good good players across, and a good spread across the league of players, which is producing producing a good product. But also, if you if you look at the coaching within the league as well, so there's there's settled coaching groups within most clubs. Um, there's pathways for coaches now. Um, and they, you know, they're they're having a real influence on their own clubs, but also on what what's happening on a Saturday or a Friday night, whatever it may be. Yeah, it's been it's been good to see how close some of the games have been, and and obviously, you know, Radwan, he kind of was blooded really. I mean, he had played for Newcastle before, but it was in the Championship he got the run of games, you know, and got that confidence and made his mistakes. He was in he's in our latest issue talking about the Championship and and how even though he was scoring, he was his games were being picked apart. And I think he played against Hartbury and, 
even though he scored, he got dropped because of he he wasn't doing what he should because the competition was still high. But all of that confidence has led to him straight away getting in the England squad as soon as he was back up. So it is, it is, but you don't want it to just be this breeding ground. It's got it's that plus something else. And I think we um did something on Plymouth in this issue, and one of their things was they they want to stop. Um, they wish they could only have two players. They wish the rule was stopped at two players from the clubs below because they can't sign anyone at the beginning because everyone in, and I'm sure Cornish Pirates would probably say the same, everyone gets scooped up by Exeter Chiefs and then you lose control of them. So they get what they're given. And actually, would it be better for those guys if you've got the top, the best ones obviously go to Exeter Chiefs, the ones down there that they take that maybe can they, can't they, would they be better off being at Cornish Pirates from the start? to manage their development or a Plymouth Albion to manage it. And then as they progress, then get snapped up because that helps those clubs because then they can manage what their squad has got. So they're not just kind of getting the players they're given. They're actually being able to build a more solid squad because they've got those local boys as well, because, you know, a lot of the, those sides don't get their local players anymore. You know, they get them if they happen to come back the second time around. Um, but you just want it to be a little bit more. And that's where I think that's where this review has got to be very careful that you don't end up having too many partner clubs where it means that seven or eight players come in and out of a squad and you lose the identity of a team. And it's not a team you can get behind because, you know, there's not the players that you're seeing on a regular basis or they're getting called back too quickly. So it's a very fine line. And, I, you know, I don't know which way it's going to go, to be honest. Just, yeah, it's it's tricky. It's like I say, with, with the academies, it's there's, there's that to go into the review as well, isn't there? Because the academies have their areas. Um, and how does that then affect the growth of a Cornish Pirates that potentially wants to go into the Premiership or a Doncaster? Doncaster is slightly different because there is a gap up there with, with the academies. But yeah. that side of it is, a, I imagine, <laughs> under discussion of the review. Um, just just touching on the the rugby journal, mate, and like what you found from within it. So, what what stories that you've covered or grounds you've been to? You've spoke of Rotherham, and you know the, mm. one of the most appearances in the championship, and obviously struggled a bit over the last couple of years. But what sort of stories stick out? There's obviously so many you wouldn't do them otherwise. But within within the league, like what what jumps off the page from your personal experience, and you know yeah. to share. But rather than one I loved because of the local, of the passion of this group of fans and that mm. they were, it meant, it really meant so much to them, but they, it was really their community. And there were so many uh, older ladies and who just rocked up at the club lonely. Do you know what I mean? And when they found their home there and their relationship with the players where even when they'd sponsored a player, and I don't know how much it costs to sponsor a player, but a lot of them sponsored players, but they still stayed connected with that player after they left were writing letters and some of the players' parents were still going to watch Rotherham as well. So they were that was that really that was an issue too. And that's really stood out. Um and actually Ant Hill, we covered them with the gate the day we went to see them was when they played old Eltamians in that crunch fixture, um, where they were they were pretty much level on points or there's a point difference or something. And then when they won, they just took themselves up ahead and they kept that gap for the rest of it. And actually, this issue we're doing now, we've got something on old Eltamians. Because obviously, the two sides have gone in separate ways. So I think those were the two that kind of stood out early on. But we went to places like Shetland because we knew they had the longest away journey, which is outside of the championship, I know. But it, it, it was a 12-hour journey to their away games. And then that was presuming the away game was the other end of the ferry. And actually, sometimes they went across to the Western Isles 
They missed their ferry and then had to race up to north, the far north of Scotland to get a ferry to Orkney to catch another one. They were away for five days for like an away team fixture. And you're, and then behind that, you've got this whole story of Sullen Vaux, the oil and how that impacted. And actually that area has got more money than anyone else. They've got more leisure centers per capita because the council's always got a reserve of like 26 million in the bank or something. So, but often it was the ones that went about the towns really and how they were linked. And that was the case with Rotherham and talking about the industry. Ampto was a little bit different with the ambition. Nottingham, we've got this one as well. And all the ups and downs um, through the ownership side of things as well, through the Sven Goran Eriksson eras and those. Um, Coventry as well. John, you know, John Sharp's story about industry. And, you know, he's very much a, a, a Coventry boy sort of, through and through and a lot of him it was the club was reflecting what was happening in the city I think and you know that's why he was so much behind it I think and but his old story being involved in sort of hiring out jet engines and come seeing an engine in the back of a hangar just gathering dust and wondering why a plane was had a however many million pound engine and set up a hire company and then that sold for however many billion so it was those stories that kind of sprung off it as well I think and and Dickie Evans, we we got really, uh, literally as the decision was made, we told the story of all the councillors and how some councillors had their other arms twisted, all the campaign that went on behind it. And then it also talked, that was the first time it came out about his Parkinson's actually like that, that interview. And it doesn't didn't make any press as such, but it went out there that that was when he was ill as well. And, you know, this man has been so much, some people are, um, are passionate about their towns for other reasons. I think even though he's been living in Africa, he's such a Cornishman through and through, and I think it means everything to him. But I think there is a club there. I don't think it's just an ego-driven thing. I think there is a potential premiership club there. We've seen it in the past, even though it, the, the community needs it, the industry needs it, every, everything should be behind the stadium for Cornwall. And as rugby, we should be trying to make that happen because... Cornwall is not a rich county. It needs it needs things. It needs a, you know, it's not about the postcards. Anyone who's been to some of the towns in November or February knows how much it struggles. And I personally would just love to see it happen. And I think it'll be such a boost for the economy down there. They've got a big, um, um, big moment with the, the stadium campaign going on at Twitter. So I'd urge anyone listening to that to um, <clears throat> check out the Cornish Pirates social media feed and the latest on the uh, stadium for Cornwall. Uh, Alex, if people want to learn more about the Rugby Journal, they want to subscribe, what's the best way for them to go about doing that? Um, yeah, you head to the rugbyjournal.com. Um, like I said, the magazine is very much like coffee table. It's all, it's long stories, it's big stories. It's all about the imagery. We've also got Rugby Photographer of the Year competition, which is launching next month, um, which uh, we, the previous one is currently still exhibiting at the uh, World Rugby Museum at Twicken. And the winning image actually was from Ant Hill. It was from that game. It was our photographer was snuck in the corner of the changing room and captured the uh, the three Tongan heroes kind of with a light glistening. And it was it's a beautiful image. But there's lots of other images across the world of, of grassroots rugby and a lot of championship there as well. So, so yeah, the rugbyjournal.com and um, it's quarterly. And we're also launching a weekly email as well. So you can sign up for that with free content. Fantastic. Alex, thank you. You've been a fantastic guest today and uh, best of luck with the, the, the upcoming issues and uh, we'll speak again soon, hopefully. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for having me. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Alex. You're listening to the Championship Clubs podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter.
Welcome back to part two of the Championship Clubs podcast brought to you in association with the Rugby Journal. Guest number two has to be one of the Championship's most loved players with one of the most extraordinary careers of any man to have played in the competition. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to the show uh, Mark Bright. Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, mate. It's good to be here. I was going to say, let's, let's dive into it. Obviously, um, signed with, with Richmond for the new season, Evergreen, and, uh, you know, just casually topping the championship dry scoring uh, charts at the tender age of 43. It's like you've never missed a beat. How are you finding life uh, with Richmond, Mark? Yeah, mate, uh, <clears throat> it's been um, it's, uh, really refreshing. Um, had, with, with COVID, I didn't play for probably 15 to 17 months. It's the longest break I've ever had in my whole rugby career, which has obviously been a, a long time. Um, but yeah, I'm really enjoying enjoying it and um, just love getting stuck in the boys and getting back out and playing. Do you know what's a bit frustrating here? I'm 40 years old. I'm looking at you, mate, 43. You're, you know, you're looking in great, Nick. You're still rocking <laughs> in the champ. And I'm going, looking at looking at myself on this picture, going, fuck, what's gone wrong? <laughs> but, um, you talk about like it being refreshing, uh, of being at Richmond and you know why why is that is it have you, are you dovetailing a, a career now it was alongside the rugby and what what's different to, to Richmond to what you well the, from the last 15 months to when you last played really yeah so uh, I've had I've had to go like semi-professional hours so I'm back back working um that's one of the other reasons why I played for Richmond I'm, I'm working with um Jimmy Litchfield and uh, him and there's a couple of other boys at Richmond at the time and they were trying to get me over to Richmond last year um, before the COVID and stuff hit and I said no no so I re-signed the Scottish but I said to him while COVID was going on I said if you can get me a job I'll come over and three days later he rang me up and he said I've got your job so you must be signing that contract so <laughs> that's how it coming back so I'm uh I'm actually just upstairs in the house we're working on at the moment, uh, doing a rare extension. So I'm on the lunch break. So we'll just be digging the foundations for the uh, footings for the foundations. <laughs> so what is the day job then? Is it a bit of grafting? Is it? Um, is, yeah. Just, yeah, just just literally labouring, mate. So for the last two weeks, we've been, uh, well, five, six days, we've been just digging the, the footings for the foundations. And we got poured on Tuesday, Wednesday. So... Yeah, it's pretty for long, but um, yeah, it's good. It's good, bro. Obviously, Mark, balancing sort of the career at, at, and the time at uh, Richmond now. First came into the league, I believe, in 2011 and been a bit of a, a revelation, but you, you'd been over playing in the UK beforehand. So it was with Red Ruth, I believe. And looking through your bio, you, you did about six seasons just playing back-to-back seasons between Red Ruth and, and then back home in, with uh, with Tasman. Yeah, um, yeah, did about... Six, seven seasons doing that. I actually <clears throat> had a four or five month little stint at Kendall before I went to uh, Red Ruth in 2006. Um, but yeah, I, I love that. Uh, well, the only thing I didn't like about it was just had no son. So the, I think the wife got sick of that and said to me, come 2011, we need to have a bit of a summer. So you might have to knock this on the head after the season. So, um, But one of the things that sort of helped me there was no pre-seasons. So I'm sure Gully will talk about and love a pre-season as well. As I was just going into every season um, match fit, which was I found so much better than the pre-seasons where you get flogged for 12 weeks and then play first game and you're absolutely dying after 10 minutes. 
mate, it's, it's fascinating, really, because I, I first came across your name when I was down at Pirates, and, and then it was like listening, so seeing you doing the, the two seasons, and I can understand the, your wife saying that she wanted some Sunday <laughs> from sort of at the winter down in the southwest to the winter back home, and you know, it's it's quite a fascinating story. So, you, you, the, the age you are now, you must. I mean, how many appearances have you made total in like your whole rugby career? It must be right up there with like with anybody within the game. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a few. Uh, well, just England wise, UK, I've done. I think it was 118 for Redbreath, 52 for Ealing, 169 for Scottish, um, four for four for Richmond, uh, five for Richmond at the moment, and oh, four for Richmond, actually. And then, yeah, whatever I've played, Club Rugby back in New Zealand, probably 200-odd games, Club Rugby, and then 92 um, minor 10 cup games, and then all the seven tournaments thrown in on top of that. Oh, mate. And you're still trucking. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, my, my old man always said to me, you're a long time on the sidelines. Um so play as long as you can. And even your good mate, uh, Paul Tupai, said to me, just keep playing as long as you can, mate. And, and genuinely, like the, the body's in a, in, a good, in a good place at the minute. You feel, you feel good. And you're obviously performing well at the weekend still. It's you're in a pretty good spot. Yeah, the body's all right, mate, to be fair. Like it's, it takes an extra day to get going, I suppose. Um, but you know, now working now, it's, 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 uh, I think that's sort of helping me a bit as well. It gets me going early on in the week and stuff like that. So, and we're, I'm only we're doing a Tuesday and a Thursday night, so it's not overly bloody hard compared to when you're full time doing four days a week flat out. So um, I can't really complain there. So uh, let's talk about obviously joining the league. So we we discussed it. You were between Red Ruth and uh, and the Tasman for, for six seasons. Who who first sort of got in touch to bring you into the championship with uh, with London Scottish? And how, was that your first experience of, of full-time over here? Or how would it work with what you were doing at Red Ruth previously? Yeah, when I got to London Scottish, it was full-time. Um, I was doing bits and pieces down at Red Ruth, but not, nothing major. It was mainly rugby. And just looking after the uh, two younger children then, who are now a lot older. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, my, my agent, uh, who was really good, went to school with him for years and was a really good, good mate of mine, he uh, he got in contact with London Scottish and it just it went from there, really. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do after the 2011 season in New Zealand. And then that sort of happened within three or four weeks towards the end of that season. And then once that finished, I was straight on the plane back, back over to the UK. You had um, who would have been coach at Scottish at that point? Because I know I, th- I looked at one of the team sheets. You had a you had a pretty tidy squad at that point, didn't you? Yeah, when I first got there, it was uh, Simon Amore and Alex Cronin coached it. Was that when uh, with PJ playing as well? P- PJ got to Scottish. The, I think it was either the year after. Or 2013, I think it might be 12-13 season. He got there. Uh, Cotters said to me, "We needed a, a 12." I said, "I know exactly where a 12 is." So I'll um, I'll have a, I'll have a word to him, see if I can get him down. Yeah, now it's good to good to be able to play a few more games with a big fella before he went over the front. Yeah, had some you had some success in those years uh, at Scottish. I mean, obviously on a personal note, I've. Topping try scoring charts every season. I think you've you've scored over ninety tries for the Exiles. But as a team, you know, there, there were a side that you were regularly in and about that top four, weren't you? Yeah, we did have a we had a pretty good squad, probably between two thousand 
2013 to 2015, 16, maybe where we were at the top, top sort of four, like you said. Um, we had like we had uh, Neil Best was signed there, Phil Phil Godman, uh, Chevy Pennycook, James Phillips, uh, Mark Irish. Um, yeah, we had some good players. Um, yeah, it's just as one of those things where it just sort of got to a point and then it stagnated a bit and then a club and quite a lot of us left the club and, and it um yeah, it sort of went downhill a Yeah, been uh tough times and I, I, I guess was it was it two thousand and seventeen then the opportunity came to, to go to Wheeling and I guess you'd be one of the players that were really, as the money really started to come into Wheeling and their ambition to be a, a top championship slash premiership challenger, you know, it became obvious. Um, uh, how was that transition into Ealing? And I guess you say coming in as part of a crop of a whole new squad under Ben Ward. Yeah, so obviously <clears throat> Codders turned up at Ealing and then got in contact with myself and then obviously I talked to my agent and he he did what he had to do and um, signed a two-year two-year deal at Ealing. Um, to be fair, I was actually shitting myself. I was I said I said to my wife, I, I don't I don't know if I really want to go. I don't I, you know I, I don't know about changing clubs and I just think I got it was a good thing. It was probably the best thing I could have done in the end because I, I think I just got too comfortable at Scottish um, and taking me out of that and put me in a new environment. I think. Um, I think I've, I've thrived on that. There's real competition for places there. And they're obviously a very ambitious club, so they, they, you don't, they don't really muck around. If you're not pulling your weight, you don't play. So, um, yeah, it's definitely definitely a good two years um, and, and, and well worth it, that's for sure. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating for, for me to listen that you've, you've got 160 games and you've, you you signed for Ealing and you're nervous going in, which means you're still still in it for the, for the right reasons. Uh, just talk, if you could, about sort of, you're very London-based with your clubs, the clubs that you've played for now, and we like to sort of talk about the stories with within the clubs and the leagues. In the league, sorry, um, how how are those rivalries within now? Like you, you're at Richmond now, you've played at Scottish, Ealing. Like, like are they are they as fierce as as they seem from the outside and and enjoyable to play in? Yeah, hundred percent. As soon as I uh, signed that contract with Richmond, I was hanging out for the fixtures to come out so I could find out when we're playing. Um, I think it's just one of those games that you always look forward to. Even when I was at Scottish, the rivalry between Scottish and Richmond, which has been around for, I mean, the ground shoot for 127 years has been massive. So there are always games you look forward to. And, and when I went to Ealing, it was the same thing. I looked forward to playing Scottish and then I really looked forward to playing against uh, Richmond. It's just one of those things that the local people say it's the local boundary. But I, I think it's a little bit more than that, um, especially if you've been at the club. Previously, you just you you want to just get stuck in there. Yeah, and then if you could just talk about the infamous uh, Richmond socials, they look. I saw one knocking around last week. Of, I think it was Max Trimble like diving down the table. Um, it looked like a, a good crack the other week, and they're, they're pretty renowned for a good social, aren't they? Yeah. So <clears throat> what happened is I uh, we played Scottish. Well, we, we had it all planned, and there's the date come out. We had a wedding. Me and my wife had a wedding to go to on that weekend. Yeah. So I, I was just thinking to myself, Christ, please don't let a social or the London Scottish game land on that weekend. You know, any other weekend, I'll be fine. Yeah. And so what happens? The the main freaking social, the Oktoberfest, and the Scottish game lands on the state. So I'm like, fuck, so. And she's like, oh, yeah, you come to the wedding. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to be there for the wedding. What I'll do is I'll play, I'll get off the pitch, 
shower, jump in the car, and I'll drive. It's down in Liscard as well, so it's a good three three hours, 40 minutes. So I literally play Scottish. I quickly shake the boys' hands, say uh, all the best and coaches and stuff like that, or enjoy the night. And they're like, where the hell are you going? I was like, I've got to get down to this bloody after party for the wedding before the bar shows. And they're like, you're a mad idiot. So I literally get off and I've got my two, well, I've got my middle, Campbell, who's 14, and Declan, who's eight. So they run around the pitch. I said to them, as soon as you see the full-time whistle, get to the car. So I come out of the showers, got to the car. It took me 15 minutes to get out of the bloody ground because everyone was trying to, all the supporters were trying to get out. And then got down to the wedding, suited and booted by 9.15, having my first pint. (laughs) But yeah, but to to answer your question, that social is a pretty, yeah, that social is legendary. Um, So I might have to play another year so I can go to that one next year. Um, on a, a personal one, Mark, obviously you mentioned being nervous going to, to Ealing. It was, uh, there was some serious quality sign the years you went there. You played for two seasons, over 50 appearances, and I believe named the RPA's Championship Player of the Year. You were also included in the Commonwealth Games England 7 squad in 2014. And, you know, anyone that's followed the league over the last 10 years would definitely say Mark Bright's been a player that at the very, very top of it. Um, was there ever an opportunity with the Premiership, or what? Did it just not come your way? And uh, you know, was it was there ever interest um, elsewhere, maybe back home or outside of the league? Uh, Premiership-wise, not. I think that I think the big thing that my agent kept telling me is that they were worried about my age. When I got by the time I got to the Championship, I was well a lot younger than I am now, um, <laughs> 30, 33 or something like that. No. They're just, I think, seen as a bit, bit past it by then. But as you said, then I went on, played at Commonwealth Games and represented England in the sevens. I think I was 35 then um, and still managing to run around and do do a half a good job at the moment. So, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy with with what's happened and, and hopefully it can continue for a little bit longer. What, um, I don't know if it's a bit personal, like, but you've had a, such a long career. Like, what, what sort of like the main highlights um, that, that stick out to you? You've mentioned the Commonwealth Games, but sort of from the rugby point of view, what, what's, what's been like your, your biggest achievements? And is it the longevity or is it anything that sticks out? Yeah, I think, I think it got to a point where I was, I said, I was, well, I had a chat with my old man. I said, I really want to play till I'm 40. That was the main goal. Um, but my personal highlight for me was definitely Commonwealth Games and uh, and then representing England again in, in the World Series tournament over in um, Port Elizabeth. That was amazing. Um, to run out, especially the Commonwealth Games at Ibrox Stadium, playing against Scotland with 50-odd thousand bloody supporters there, obviously cheering on Scotland, not England, was something that you know, I'll never forget for the rest of my life. I think it's um, just absolute testament to to yourself, Martin, obviously asking that question, if there was ever any interest. I've, I've been in and around the league for, for nine years now. And the fact that at the start of me watching that, you were, you were still sort of almost in your, your mid-30s. And now you've had so many consistent seasons of being at the absolute pinnacle of what we know to be a, a highly... Uh, physical and obviously highly skillful for division, I think is just absolute testament. As we say, still topping try scoring charts this year with Richmond. It's uh, it, it is phenomenal, mate. Yeah, I, I, on the championship, I just I mean, it's my tenth season playing. Um, I just don't think it, it gets the credit it deserves. Um, how it's not fully funded, I, I, I don't I don't really understand uh, the amount of players 
coaches, trainers, medical people that go from the championship, either the premiership or into an international setup is, I don't think it's as well documented as it should be. Um, but like a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of people about the champ and, you know, they hum and har about it, but it is probably the most physical league that I've played in um, compared to New Zealand where it's a lot faster. But um, physicality-wise, it gets harder and harder every year. Um, and uh, to see the champ fully funded would be, uh, be, be a good day. Yeah. Yeah, man, I fully, fully agree. And it's sort of why we sort of got got this up and running was just to try and shine that light on it. I spent a long time playing in it and played in the yeah. good times and the, and, the, and the bad times of it. And it's... Uh, it's it's great to hear you talking so positively about it, and we like we like to compare as well. It's sort of it's interesting you doing the comparison with the the, the New Zealand the New Zealand league, and it's it's yeah. a quick league over there apparently. Yeah, so just it's nice nice to hear that your value in it, having the experience that you do across the world in rugby. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, like I said, the, New Zealand's a lot faster, but like coming over the first first season I played over here in 2011, I was like, holy shit. So the size of some of these boys, you're just like, bloody hell. Like some of the forward backs, you come across bigger than premiership forward backs. You're just like, where do they get all these players? It's like they just go out and sign the biggest players. Eight biggest players in fine. It's ridiculous. But, um, yeah, it's just a grind, isn't it? The champ, everyone chucks the ball around for the first three or four months and then the rain sets in and then it's 10-man rugby get to the corner and drive everyone to death. <laughs> Has it been any? So that's a good way. I scored a lot of tries that way, so I don't mind. So that's fine. Has there been any sort of big changes that you've seen since uh, since joining the league in 2011? Any particular things that stick out, whether it's on the field, off the field? Uh, I think uh, I think it, uh, the competition has gone up a bit. Um, progressively got got harder and harder. It, ha- it has become a, a faster faster game compared to what it was in 2011. Um, there's still big chunky forward packs getting around and you're still going to do the basics of bloody rolling malls and scrum and lineouts and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I just don't think it gets the credit it deserves. That's the main thing. It's like off the field sort of stuff. Um, if they, if they, if they ever do fund it, I think it'll be, it'll be a good day for English rugby. Um, I don't think they can let this competition die, but yeah, TV wise, I think maybe they could probably get more games broadcasted just to get it out there a bit more. It should get a few more games televised and just and just see what it can do. Obviously, you big game this weekend, Bedford. Um, we we talk quite positively about Bedford on the show for their want to chuck the ball around and play attractive rugby. Um, what sort of uh, what's the aims going over to Goldington Road uh, this Saturday for for your new Richmond squad? Uh, well, probably to stop them from doing exactly what you just said. <laughs> uh, you know, I've played Bedford. A few times over the last 10 years, and you're, you're exactly right. They just love throwing the ball around. They're very good at it as well. And um, I think one of the main things is if you can slow their ball down, that breakdown, and, and and just so they can't go side to side, you, you might be able to shout. But if they get going, they're very hard to stop. They've got attacking players and threats all over the park. So um, we'll have to be bang on defensively uh, come Saturday. But uh, the boys have been working this week so I'm sure we can put that into fruition and then just I was just going to say so you, you you're in for another year because you got you missed the Oktoberfest um, <laughs> this year so what's uh, what's the plan like moving forward how long can you, you keep going mate what's what's that you got a little goal in your head or are you just going to ride the wave like like Paul Tupai 
did for so long. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty keen to ride the wave for as long as I can, but um, I want to try and first first goal is to get to 200 champ games. So that's and that's another 15 away. So I want to try and get that, whether that's the season or next season, and then yeah. maybe try and get mine get maybe get the 100 tries up in the champ as well. We'll see see if that can happen as well. It took me 80 games to get one try in a championship. <laughs> you're, you're talking about getting 100 tries, so I, I don't know what to say, mate. <laughs> yeah, but that, I'm sure that one try, you would have worked it then so hard and then I've done my 100, so you'll be right. <laughs> well, mate. I just wanted to say, Mark, from a from a championship rugby perspective, I hope that you keep playing to 100 and beyond. I hope that you score over 100 of tries. You've been a, a, a real treasure of the division. And uh, thank you very much for joining us on today's show. No yeah. worries, mate. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, boys. Cheers, Paul. Cheers, mate. That was the Championship Clubs podcast. Be sure to come back in a fortnight's time and follow us on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. 